This is Behind the DM Screen. It is August of 2022. We are three DMs helping each other out, and I am Jeff Greiner. With me, as always, is Mike Shea. Hello. And Sam Dillon. Say hi, Sam. Hello. There you go. (laughs) Very good. So, uh, that is the introduction. We each get 15 minutes on the clock, and then we ignore it and talk about what we've been doing in our games for the last... uh, month or so since we last recorded um address whatever questions or conundrums or things that have come up that that come up so uh i'm gonna hit start on the timer and i am first on the list so i'm gonna talk about what i've done um i am still running i mean obviously last time we chatted i was in chapter one and i am still in chapter one of Baldur's gate descent into avertus um that said, we we were in last time we chatted. We were in Baldur's Gate. We'd done a bunch of you know we'd done to the the Dungeon of the Dead three. We've done we've talked to Amrick Van Thamper. Um, we had gone into Van Thamper Villa. Mike is nodding because he's familiar with the the story. Um, Sam Sam is too. Sam Sam did you run Descent? I mean, he reads the hell out of everything. Well, that's true. <laughs> I did not run it, right? But I did read it. Um, in any case, uh, well, but some of our listeners may not be, uh, the idea they've gone through a bunch of the stuff in, in Baldur's Gate. They've learned about, um, the Van Thamper's connection to devilish creatures and started, got their first hints of Zeriel. They recovered the shield of the hidden Lord. Um, they, um, they got, they retrieved the puzzle box and, and then I, um, wowed my my players because I pulled out an actual puzzle box. I went out and well, two years ago or whatever when this thing came out and I was excited about it. Originally, I went and and I spent the last couple of years hunting for different puzzle boxes. So I bought three or four of them around the house now and I picked the one that I wanted to use. And they were all super excited about digging into an actual puzzle box. And then I um, I took it away from them because they kept futzing with it without wanting to take the damage associated with t- futzing with it. Um, cause the whole, the idea is that you need to find, uh, if you futz with it without the expertise of Sylvira Savakis, um, then you start taking psychic damage, uh, every so often. And I'm like, okay. So the first time they started doing it and they were, they were playing with it, or whatever, somebody took psychic damage and they're like, Whoa, okay. We don't mess with it anymore. But out of character, they kept sort of fiddling with it. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to take this away and put it over here now. Otherwise, I'm going to have to keep doling out damage because you keep playing with it. Uh, but <laughs> so they're excited about that. Um, yeah, they futzed around and found out. Um, so yeah, so so they got through that. They've uh, teamed up with Rhea Mantelmorn. And a lot of this has connections that I think they've really enjoyed from the previous campaign. So the previous campaign where we did Dragon Heist Waterdeep, um, Curse of Strahd, and then I cobbled together some homebrew stuff using some published materials that I, you know, tore out of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden or tore out of uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Um, but some of the things that I did is I alluded to in sort of our epilogue or the wind down of that campaign that arena from barovia um could no longer couldn't live in waterdeep because in that campaign 
Castle Ravenloft appeared at the top of Mount Waterdeep when when they came back into the world. Uh, and she's like, I can't stay here in Waterdeep and live in the shadow of this thing that has haunted me my entire existence. Um, and so I'm leaving with this NPC paladin and we're going to go live in El Terrell and I will start a new life. And so she changed her name to Rhea, who wears a mantle of mourning because of her time. You know, so she's Rhea Mantlemorn. Uh, so, so, so they like that little, you know, oh, we know her, even if our characters know her. don't, yeah. that's cool. And then one of the other things that I did was, um, you know, you may recall, I had the various dark powers sort of choose champions in the Forgotten Realms. And one of them was a pit fiend, um, who, what is Gargoth. Gargoth, yeah. Uh, and so they were actually, their, their PCs were instrumental in trapping Gargoth in a celestial shield as a means of defeating him. Uh, and so they created the Shield of the Hidden Lord that now they, these other PCs in this new campaign have recovered. And so they're enjoying oh, cool. yeah. all those little cameos, and that's that's kind of fun. I have to change a little bit of the lore, because the lore of the the setting is that, like, Gargoth has been in a shield and in Baldur's Gate for 100 years. Mm-hmm. But our setting is, you know, well, this all just happened, like, a year ago. So, um, you know, you, you, you fudge some of those things and don't worry about it and whatever, and it works out. You can twist the time, so for him it's been a hundred years. Yeah, or just don't right? worry like, about. Just don't rely on the. Or don't the, care. Yeah. Yeah. The, Baldur's if you, Gate, if you want to make him mad, have right. him stuck. You know, stuck for the equivalent of a hundred years in the. Bal- you know, as long dimension. as you establish that Baldur's Gate is a horrible place to be, even yeah. without the shield of the Hidden Lord corrupting the city, like then, yeah, then it's right. fine. Right. Uh, and and I, I'm willing to say that Baldur's Gate was a pretty horrible place long before Gargoth showed up. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, so that all went well. Um, I ran some additional, uh, I've got a cup, I've got three or four different sort of, um, sources of additional encounters, um, that I sort of brought into, to take more, because part of the, the story of, or the thing that your task in Baldur's Gate, your primary task is get rid of this cult of the dead three, right? But as written, there has to be like 10 days without any incidents from the cult before you get paid. Um, and so, and, and they, one of the side quests was they had to go through a training to gain weapon proficiency from a local weapon master that they had helped. And, and so they wanted some, to spend some time in Baldur's Gate anyway. Um, and so I used some of these other encounters and, and, um, had him doing some other things for the flaming fist or, or, you know, um, you know, whatever, right. Throwing in some extra encounters just to, to spice things up a little bit as we go. Uh, so then we got through that time. And they were ready to head off to Candlekeep, right? They wanted to find Sylvira and figure out what's going on with this shield thing and open up this puzzle box and figure out what they can, you know, they're pretty well aimed at going to Avernus already, which I I've, have found the previous time that I ran it, that having players that are already motivated to continue on to that part of the adventure is helpful. Um, you don't have to do a hard sell on why they need to go to hell um, to, in order to save a town that most of them are not from. Um, so so they're already sort of on that track. Then we got to Candlekeep. You know, there was some there was like an encounter or two on the way. Like there's the the, the farmer that um, the fake farmer that's actually a Cambian that's in the in the adventure as written that they run into this trying to steal the hid, the shield of the hidden lord back and that actually turned into a pretty um a fairly intense encounter because it occurred to me in the middle of the fight that um the Cam- cambians have plane shift 
once a day as a spell. And the implication is that it's like their escape hatch, right? They can they can get out of any fight by just plane shifting back home. But it suddenly occurred to me, like, why? Why does it have to be an escape hatch? We can use plane shift offensively. And so mm-hmm. the Cambian, when things were looking bad, the Cambian's like, fine, and flew down to the paladin who had the shield that, that they wanted and said, and, and cast plane shift to, to you know, I'm going to send you, I'm going to go ahead and send you to Avernus now, right? Um and then he, then he he blew his, um, he blew his save. But and he had already used his inspiration. So he, uh, I I use uh, I I homebrew a little bit the or house rule a little bit that you can use inspiration to get a reroll instead of having to spend it ahead of time for advantage. Um, so he'd already spent his inspiration, so he doesn't have that. Uh, but one of the other players towards the end of the night. So one of the other players used their inspiration to give him a reroll, and then he wouldn't have gotten it except that he was also blessed. Uh, Raya had blessed him. Uh, and so he barely stayed out of hell. And honestly, like, it made a ton of sense for that Cambion to do that. It made a ton of sense in the in that part of the story. But in the back of my head, I was like, oh, it's a good thing this is towards the end of the night because if this happens, like, I don't know what that does to the campaign. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Like, what is this character? What what is this player going to play while mm-hmm. we wait for the rest of the party to get to Avernus and find him? You know, yeah, so, right. uh, so I was a little worried, but luckily he just barely made the save, and I didn't have to worry about it. Um, I suppose I could have handed him Raya and said, "Here, play this." Um, yeah, it's always. I mean, all that kind of stuff. That's like that's the biggest problem with having characters die, right? Is oh, like, right. what do you do with the player? Like, you know. Everybody's always like, you know, the game needs to be hard. It's like, you know, I don't want to have a player sit there for two hours because they died yeah so yeah it's a tricky problem yeah so so yeah so anyway they they got through that okay they got to candle keep um so i have i think i've mentioned that i've introduced a group patron um like in session zero i introduced a group patron um at first they didn't know that they all had the same patron um but they came to realize that you know by session two or three but they only know this patron as the betrayed they don't know who it is or what they want or whatever, but they know that they have the betrayed has some sort of extensive network um, that seems to help them out. Like when they were in Baldur's Gate, they never had to pay for food or, or lodging a single night because it was already covered, you know? And when the, it, when word had gotten out that they were looking for, you know, uh, Oh, we're, we'll need to go out and looking for potions or whatever, before we go down into Van Thamper Villa, just in case, um, you know, the next morning, a, a potion merchant said, oh, I heard that you guys were, were looking for, for potions and you just showed up at breakfast, you know, uh, because the betrayed is sort of pulling these strings behind the behind the scenes to, to make these things happen. Um, so when they show up in Candlekeep, um, two of the players like immediately go into the library and start searching the stacks for, for various information they want. One of them is like, I need to find out who more information about this betrayed individual. Um, the other one is like, we're going to hell. I need to get some more information about hell, right? <laughs> um, that's fair. Uh, the other two, the other three, I guess the other three went to the hearth, which is like the the, the tavern in Candlekeep with the the ogre with the headband of intellect, a little one, sitting there. And they show, and and I decided like it doesn't make sense that like at this point it's been ten plus days. Why wouldn't the refugee crisis from Elturel have started to leak down into Candlekeep as well. Yeah, so, sure. So it occurred to me, like, oh, let's just say 
all of the rooms are pretty much full. But they walked into the hearth and they start talking to Little One because that's an unusual weird figure to see sitting and reading books and drinking coffee, uh, a giant ogre, you know. Um, and so they start talking to him and he's like, oh, oh, you're the, you're those people. I was told to expect you. Here's a key to your room uh, and here's some vouchers so you can get food whenever you want to while you're in town. Right. And, and that's just sort of how I've played the network of the betrayed, providing them in, with stuff and helping them with things. Um, but, you know, he's like, you know, most of the rooms in in the keep are are full. There's not a lot of lodging because, of, because we've taken in some refugees uh, and what have you. But uh, I found you a room down in the Firefly cellar um, here. You could go. Here's this key. It'll, it'll get you in. Uh, and so they came to really like him. Meanwhile, um, the player in the in the stacks who is hunting for information about the betrayed um, starts to get some information that the betrayed is just one of many nicknames this character has gone by. Um, it, they, they are sometimes known as the betrayer or the bloody handed um, because what's what the, what it's building to is that the betrayed is actually the entity inside the companion and rather than having it be an angel it is kaz um cat mm -hmm. of kaz and vecna um right. it, which leads to this whole well this is why he wants them there because someone's running around in avernus with the the goddamn hand of vecna and we need to get rid <laughs> of that shit right um we know who that is right and so so they don't know it yet but but of course Kaz the betrayer would not know it would not refer to himself as the betrayer he's the one who feels betrayed by Vecna and so he that he's just going by the betrayed and right. and the two characters who are sort of um, from an assassin's guild um, that are on retainer um, are named as his his um, his the his bloody hands right referring to the bloody the bloody handed nickname for for kaz so she finds out about some of the other nicknames but i don't give her the name of kaz but i do point out that the book that she found that information in is written by morden canaan a guy who's not even from this world mm -hmm. right but, but he also shows up later in the adventure and and so there's more clues there um the other player went off and was searching for stuff about hell and it worked out really well because i have the beetle and grim box right and there's there's a pamphlet about about the hells and it's just sort of a primer on on the nine layers and and kind of information you need to know and whatever um but it also uh the beetle and grim box also has a little extra encounter you can incorporate and it basically says when when somebody's you can throw this in when somebody's searching for hell and they pull out a, a, a book or something about the hells and it summons this little uh, imp who offers them an infernal contract. And But the whole party wasn't there, just the one player who was also the paladin who's carrying the shield of the hidden lord, right? Uh, and and the, this imp shows up in a top hat with a monocle looking all, you know, speaking relatively fancy given that they've got the sort of gruff uh, devilish voice. Um, and he, and the, the imp offers him a deal. Well, who do you work for? Oh, well, I can't, I can't talk about that. That's not part of the deal, but you know, it's okay. Uh, I promise that this is it's somebody, all, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. This is somebody you're totally going to want to have on your side and we're going to give you a boon and all you have to do is nothing <laughs> in, in the very near future. Somebody is going to try to kill a little one and all you have to do is not interfere. Right. And, and I was, I was honestly a little shocked because it was the paladin doing this and he was like okay i'm interested and so the imp's like okay uh okay 
here's the contract. And the contract is like carved into the back of a Lemur demon or devil, right? Uh, and that was the point that the paladin's like, oh, no, no, no. Now, now this feels shady to me. I'm like, you are about to make a deal with an unknown entity via a, an imp as proxy. And this is the part that, that was the, the, the line in the sand, right? Um, so I almost got him, right? Uh, I almost got the paladin to give up just a little bit of his soul um, for an unnamed, an unspecified boon when they go to hell. And theoretically an ally, um, you know, what they, they don't know it, but the, the, the imp is there in, in service of Bell. Right. So, uh, so then after that, and I'll do hit this quick. Um, after that, they went to the Firefly cellar. Well, one of the characters has a bag of beans. And so he had some fun planting beans randomly in the middle of the courtyard of, of Candlekeep. Um, so now there's a statue of him in the middle of Candlekeep and nobody knows why, but um, such is the, the way things work with a bag of beans. Uh, then they went down to the Firefly Cellar to rest for the night. And I, the reason I did the whole thing with the Firefly Cellar was because uh, I figured, hey, you're in Candlekeep. What adventures from Candlekeep Mysteries could I throw in here to, to elaborate on Candlekeep a little bit more, right? And there was one that was hit about the right level, and it was one that like kept you in Candlekeep. It wasn't like you start in Candlekeep and then you run off somewhere else. Uh, and so it kind of hit all of the notes that I needed to hit, um, and it involved them, hey, you go to sleep in the Firefly Cellar, and you wake up in the morning, and there's this song stuck in your head. And then you notice everybody else is also singing it at the exact same time as you. And then all the NPCs that you run into are also singing this song. And you're all singing it sort of in unison. And it's stuck in your head. And you have to make a concentration track to force yourself to stop singing it. Um, uh, and, and then, and then one of the, whoever's in charge of the cellar like, realizes what's going on is an elf who was who was has been there for 700 years or whatever and, and was there 500 years ago when this happened before and locks down the cellar and, and quarantines everybody until you can figure out what's happening uh so it's an adventure from candlekeep mysteries called shemshami's bedtime rhyme uh and it played in exactly one session and it was a ton of fun uh i couldn't speak more highly of this adventure it was really well done um in fact one of the things that was most well done about it is at the very end you go through this mystery and you're you're searching for clues and you're talking to npcs and you're discovering the dead body of where the previous people uh who who brought this cursed book into Candlekeep were were sort of buried under the flagstones and um you discover that the caretaker who's a kinku has stashed it away with all their other shiny things the the book has been stashed away and and the first time you remember hearing the song is when you walked through the kitchen while the caretaker was making breakfast and she sort of was whistling it to herself right and that and that's when you were infected with it is that you get infected just by listening to it and so we went through the whole thing eventually it summons shemshami this sort of uh, undead shadow creature whatever uh and they would have normally like wiped it out uh in in the first round it's got like 30 hit points right and they're level four it's it's not it was it's not a challenge except it's part of sort of the fairy tale from the book that the only way that they were able to defeat it was they they dropped the millstone in the local windmill on top of it right uh and so shemshimi has this feature where it can only be killed it can only be dropped below to zero hit points or below when something of a thousand pounds or greater is dropped on it hmm. so it doesn't matter how much you hit it now you can't defeat it 
<laughs> but they'd fig- but you'd you'd gathered the clues, so they knew what was going on, and they had to lure it upstairs and then drop one of the bookshelves on it, and uh, in order to defeat it, and and it, it it was just a lot of fun. It went really well. The the combat encounter wasn't wasn't impossible, but it was a challenge because of that feature where you had to lure it and drop things on it. Um, you know, it just, it was a lot of fun and it went really well. And I was, I was incredibly pleased because we ran it last Friday and I was exhausted and I had been doing a bunch of stuff, uh, for the whole week. And, um, I was, I'm like, I don't know if I'm in the headspace to run an adventure. And then it went really well and I walked away like really happy with it. So I was going to ask some questions about some stuff, but I am over time and Sam, uh, doesn't want to go over time much tonight. So here we are. Any thoughts or questions before I move on? No, it sounds cool to me. Um, have you thought about soul coins? In terms of the infernal um, war machines? Yeah, how are you so gonna? I'm gonna do the same thing that I did when I ran it before with my kids. Yeah, um, okay, that's right. I'm, you I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch the demon icker and the soul coins. For yeah, I think we talked. We talked about that. Yep. that's right. We already talked about that. Cool. That was something I had a problem with. Yep. Mike. Like had a problem with it. It didn't bother. It bothered me, it, but my players had a problem with it too. It sure. caused a lot of issues. We had to big character and figure out a solution, and then ham fisted in. So it's a yep. good thing to take care of early. No, that's. Uh, I think we had talked about it. Uh, yeah. No, I, I remember in that. In our we... initial review, and so that's how I ran it with my kids. So. Yeah, I remember that we did that. Um, but yeah, and that worked pretty well. And then you know, at least one of my kids did it. They literally just never used the soul coins in the infernal war machines. It just sure, yeah. was, was unnecessary. They'd rather have an encounter and fight than, than burn a soul coin. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, I've got all kinds of plans for what's going to happen next. And I expect that by the next time we chat, they will be in Avernus. Uh, and I'm running a, a mashup of what's in, the book is written and what's in the Candlekeep book that uh was it ryan kramer and, and ed greenwood and whatever wrote back in the uh in fact i think teos may have written the chapter uh connecting it to uh descent into avernus um so i'm going to mash up those things and, and add a little of my own flavor to some things and do that in the next few days and i think they'll be in avernus here in a, two or three weeks awesome so and then I've got all kinds of things to talk about because I've got characters that I have backstories that connect to the world. And I'm like, well, some of the, some of the characters are going to have their backstories play out in Avernus. And some of them, I don't know how to make that connection. So I, I may be taking that to the Discord since I'm out of time here. Uh, <laughs> I do want to remind people that if you want to hang out with us, we have all kinds of social medias, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, or Discord, uh, the Tome Show is available in all those places, and you should come hang out with us. Mike? Yeah, so I finished my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game uh, last week. and But I, I have I already talked about that. I did a couple of videos about that already, so I'm not going to talk about that too much here. But I was it was great. It was really fun. Uh, I like that campaign a lot. I'm, I'm, it was a it was a you know a refreshing change from Dragon of I- or Dragon of I- Peak, from from Rime of the Frost Maiden, mm-hmm. uh, in many many ways. And uh, we were all I remember my, I was talking to my wife about it when we were done, and she said, you know, like I'm sad. Like I I get it. Like we want to move on, and there's not really more to do. But I'm I'm sad leaving this campaign. Like I'm sad leaving these characters. I'm sad leaving this story. And she never said anything like that when we yeah. did Descent into Avernus and Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's not like people are like, oh, thank God we're done with that. 
But it's different when it's like you love the characters, you love the story, you love the NPCs, you love the setting so much. You're like, I just want to be there. I don't have anything left to do, right? And like the characters change. I just want to be there. And so I thought that was it. It would be I, this is one where I would say like it would be really fun to get the same players together and say five years later let's bring the characters together and have sort of a little sub adventure like a did little the, epilogue sort the con- of thing. Was the conclusion satisfying? Yes. Uh, so mine was right. Like I I changed a lot and like I had a whole different villain from the villain that's in the books and um but yeah definitely and and doing like a one year later with the players they had lots of really fun fun ways that they that they had done. One of the characters became the new Fey Lord over Prismere. You know, took over took over Zabilna's job. One of them became a plane walker. You know, one became a sheriff who spends all their time uh, trying to figure out which bullywugs have killed which other bullywugs, which was awesome. And so, yeah, everybody had just really one one person took over the uh, the witchlight carnival and said like, we're just going to bring bring some order to this, and then just brought in all their grifter relatives to <laughs> to, to to handle it. So yeah, it was just it was great. I always love those one year later montages. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a new campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Empire of the Ghouls oh. by Cobalt Press. Yeah. And uh, so I was interested in trying to break away from, you know, I'm tr- trying to break into some third party, big, big per- third party stuff. It's when I kickstarted a long time ago. I looked at it, you know, Richard Green. I, I hang out with him all the time in Discord, who, who kind of produced it and wrote a couple of the adventures for it and sort of put everything together for Cobalt Press. And so I thought this would be fun to, fun to try. And so we had our session zero of that last night. We had seven players because I have one on-call player, but I said, since he's on-call, why doesn't he come to the session zero in that way? Sort of if he's already got a character or he knows what's going on, then when he comes in, when people are out, which is going to be pretty often because someone's six people, somebody's almost always out. Mm. And um, uh, so we had a great, great session zero, uh, really fun characters. But one of the one of the tricky bits, the thing that's really hard with this is I said play, the, the, the sources for this book are the player's handbook, the Tome of Heroes and Midgard Heroes and not Xanathar's and not Tasha's. And my my recommendation is doing it on paper, like using a paper character sheet. And that is a struggle. Right, yeah. like half the players that were there still made a D and D Beyond character just to, and then use proxy stuff just to do all the math, right? Just to like figure out what all the equations and stuff like that were. And you're like, that makes sense. Part of, you know, and in some cases, it's like I think, I think people can make it harder than it has to be, right? Like it's not that like figuring out proficiency in your attributes is not that difficult, but you know, it's sort of like you know the 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 drive to use a calculator for this stuff is enough that you might even work harder than you need to if you just did it by hand, right? right. So that, that's tricky. But I mean, everybody kind of, I'm not making them do, they can use whatever they want. I'm, I'm not dictating that they don't. If they, if they want to make a character in D&D Beyond and actually put all the stuff in there and have a, a Minotaur, hmm. that's fine because you can customize it and do all that. I think it's probably more work than you need to do. Um, but, you know, it can do it. But, but part of it is just like, now that Wizards of the Coast bought D&D Beyond, it's and D and D Beyond is really good, right? It's great that they did right. that, and it's really good for people that you know have a big investment in D and D Beyond and, and everything like that. But it also is hedging out third party stuff. Well, and, and third party stuff already wasn't supported, and, right? And, and I mean, it never that, was, right? But now right. it's really not going to be supported, right? right? Now like, you now know it's, it's never going right. to happen. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so I'm I'm I want. There's a couple things. One is. I want the res- I want to support the resilience of D and D, which does should not depend upon just Wizards of the Coast, right. and I want to enjoy a lot of this wonderful material that's been put out for years that I've never used, right? And I the the, the fun that and that's something that is 
I'm I'm realizing like I knew I was going to do this, but I'm realizing it more like as I'm as we were playing, which is I'm not just using Empire of the Ghouls. I'm using the Midgard World Book. I'm using Twelve Angry Towers or whatever it's called. Twelve Peculiar Towers. Uh, I'm I'm using the uh, Demon Cults and Secret Societies book. Like I haven't even started yet, and I've already got like seven different Cobalt Press books that talk about the world. You know, they have Ebon Tides, which is coming out this month. And that's all about Shadow Fae stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm like, well, there's Shadow Roads that go on in this adventure. So part of it is like, I, it's, 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 you know, Empire of the Ghouls feels like the Storm King's Thunder for Midgard, right? Like, it is a huge, sprawling adventure. It goes, it travels 5,000 miles, right? Like, you start in the city of Zobek, but it travels like 3,000 miles north and then 2,000 miles south from, you know, Zobek. So you're huge distances which is very much like storm king's thunder the good if you know that ahead of time some people are like oh my god there's so much travel like how do you handle so much travel and it's like well now that i know it's there i'll figure out ways to to, to make it interesting right. but it's also like a really fun way to see a lot of midgard you get to see the southlands you get to see the northern islands you get to see the weird vampire state that, you get that, to that see is, a lot the, of different stuff yeah, that, that is the biggest appeal that that adventure has to yeah me, it's like really... you're gonna you're gonna soak in midgard right like you're gonna it doesn't have the western waste which is my favorite region so i'm a little right. bummed that that western waste is in I, there. i but... think every setting needs to have a big travelogue adventure to help introduce mm-hmm. the setting uh and i think it was it's brilliant that they've done it and I, I yeah. regret that I haven't done anything with it yet. Yeah. So my only, my only problem. So the adventure is definitely more linear than a, than like certainly more linear than storm King's thunder, which is good because storm King's thunder is like, here's the sword coast. And every so often giants show up, right? Like this, this one actually has a clear cohesive plot and that's fine. Cause like I can use, I could do it this grinder style and I can use that. Like that's a skeleton plot. And then I'm going to have all kinds of other stuff going on. I already have like a, one of the one of my my wife's character is a um a, she's a barbarian, right? A barbarian bear bear folk barbarian. Yeah. And her and her background is occultist, right? And she's like she she her intelligence is ten, so she's not like a super smart occultist. But she picked up a book of like cults, or somebody wrote out was like keeping track of the cults. And she's like, oh, everything is a cult now, right? And she's like, miss miss conspiracy theory, <laughs> miss Mr. Conspiracy theory, and I'm like, oh, definitely one of the you know, so I, I in trying to get them all to the intro because we yeah we did a session zero, but then I did like a little encounter just so everybody could sort of sh- you know shake the cobwebs off their characters and actually try them out. And um, I had her the the way that she was driven there is that a voice came to her and said, "You have a destiny. Like there's important things going on, and you have a destiny, and you need to go to this bar tonight." You know, and she goes to the bar and then gets kind of involved in the adventure. And I was like, who is that? And I'm like, it's one of the cults, right? Like a member of one of the cults <laughs> has done some kind of thing and said, this person's into it. I'm going to like telepathically project a message saying you, you want to get involved. And and I think that's going to be a character that shows up in the next adventure. Like she's going to show up and she's not nice. This cultist ladies, but she's like a competing cultist, right? We don't like we don't like the Red Sisters, right? So we want you to go deal with the Red Sisters so that our cult can be stronger and so, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. The, the hard part is, like, I could just see us bathing in this thing for two years, right? I could I could see going way beyond what's in Empire of the Ghouls alone yeah. and, and taking a long time with it, which should be fine, right? But it's like, Spelljammer's coming out in a month, right? And, you know, it's like, that That would be kind of fun to play, too. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of crazy that I run two D&D games a week. You know, I've completed, I, I think I did a list and I've finished like 22 campaigns since fifth edition came out, you know, and 
and I'm still there's way more material than I could ever run. Now, are you, you know? are you doubling up like you often tend yeah. to do? Yeah. So I have um I'm 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 getting close to the end of a Numenera game on my Sunday on my Sunday group, and I think I don't know how many sessions left three or four sessions left in that, uh, and then I think we're gonna go to Scarlet Citadel. So I'm gonna do another Cobalt Press adventure. Uh-huh. For, for that one, that's more focused and kind of dungeon delving. And that you know, way I can enjoy Scarlet Citadel as well. I don't know well. if I've told you my, my brilliant mashup idea with Scarlet Citadel. <laughs> What's that? Uh, to run a Strixhaven campaign and the Scarlet Citadel is what they do during summer break. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 My thing is like, again, I don't want to, I, I want to use Cobalt Press material. Sure. So like I want to use, I think I'm going to offer the same sources, you know, or, or close to it. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Because that's the other the other hard part is like us freaking figuring out how to share books because it's like 50 bucks for those Mm -hmm. two books in PDF. Right. And that's a lot. If you say like, hey, come to the game, you got to spend 50 dollars on PDFs in order to play. So like we brought everybody there and we're passing iPads around. I've got a physical I bought an extra digital copy so I could put it on two different devices and sort of share it and not feel bad about it. Right. And, you know, but boy, I mean, it gets to like. D&D Beyond's really good. Like that ability to sh- buy a book once and share it among 30 players or whatever it is. That's pretty nice. And it's yep. something where you, you know, it's, it's interesting. This isn't really about my game, but kind of, you know, it's all kind of related, which is it's interesting that it feels like wizards played leapfrog in this. Cause they had no digital presence before, you know, they had no digital presence before they didn't want to sell PDFs. They didn't have any way to get a digital. All you had to do was buy physical books and they, and they, they still, now they have like the, the, the back catalog, but they don't have any five E stuff in PDF. And then they left over PDF and created the system right. where you can buy a book once and share it. Right. And that's, you know, I like all, I get it. You know, don't, don't get me started about the whole, like, you're not buying a book, you're licensing a book and you don't really own it. Cause you know, I get it. Right. But also me being able to buy a book for 20 bucks. And or buy one copy of Tasha's and have right. every player not only have access to the book, but the ability to integrate it into their character sheet right away. Yep. Boy, that's sticky, right? And I don't, that's, that's really good and really bad because it's really good because of how easy it is to like get people involved and get into play and really bad because you, you have to kind of do it their way. Yep. Right. And that's, and that's really tricky. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to my Empire of the Ghouls game. My, my head, I would last night, Michelle, you know, we were done with the game. We're kind of just relaxing. And I'm sitting there with Demon Cults and Secret Societies. And my, like, I, you know, my eyes are wide. And I'm like, oh. And she's like, it's pretty good if right after the game, you're already like still diving yeah. in and like prepping. And I'm like, oh, I, I feel like it because it's like everybody really enjoyed having a fresh setting like everybody mm-hmm. liked that like we didn't really none of us really know midgard that well mm-hmm. and and so it's it's kind of like you know it's it's like being frontiersmen right it's like we get to go out and, and see this whole thing yep. and so, that so I really that demon it. that demon colts book is yeah. one of those books that kind of flew under the radar i think a little bit I backed it on Kickstarter, and it's a great book. Yeah. But there was so much going on at the time, and like Tome of Beasts and Tome of Beasts Two and Creature, all that stuff blew up, and it kind of flew under. Yeah, I mean, that, well, and, that's the thing. Like, I get, you know, I have so much stuff because I back every like. There's like two or three companies where whatever they put out in Kickstarter, I back it, and I back the physical version, and, and Cobalt Press is one of them. So I have shelves of Cobalt Press stuff, mm-hmm, right? Right, right? And and I haven't dug into it, and I'm like, and now it's my opportunity. Like I haven't even really looked at these at these books. I never really yeah. looked at, 
Midgard Heroes. The funny thing is there's like a Midgard Heroes handbook and a Midgard Heroes book, and they are both different. And so when I said Midgard Heroes is allowed, one of the players brought, and it's a soft, a thin soft cover yeah, book. Yes. That was and, a very early fit. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, this? And I'm like, no, this one is the hardcover. Right. The, yeah. the, the orangey, orangey hardcover with the griffin on the front. Yeah. Right. And well, he's like, because, oh, that's because, a different book. Well, <laughs> like, there's three different kinds of gear forged, right? right? And three different books. So they, it's, Well, yeah. they, they had integrated a bunch of the early stuff into one book and then fleshed out more things. Yeah. And converted some old Pathfinder stuff and whatever. Right. And sort now, of like Deep the, Magic, and right? Now, yeah, sort of like Deep Magic. And now the, the bigger trick to it is that now there's the Hero's Handbook and then there's also the Tome of Heroes, right? Um, you know, so. Well, and, and I asked, so I, I was talking to Richard to, to, to Richard Green about it because I'm like, you know, I'm going to run this. What? And I, here's my idea. What? A, I'm thinking of just doing Player's Handbook plus Tome of Heroes. And he was like, well, there's a lot of really good Midgard connection stuff that's in the Heroes Handbook that's not in Tome of Heroes because Tome of Heroes was aimed to be for any world mm-hmm. more so than just Midgard. So you miss out on a bunch of backgrounds. You miss out on a bunch of races that are kind of, and I'm like, man, so I got to do both books. And then again, my, my hard part is, you know, like my wife's like, great. Now I have to juggle three different books to figure out exactly <laughs> what I want to make. And like, how does that work? And I don't have a tool that helps put it together. So yeah, it's, yep. it was tricky, but yeah, it's, it's, it was, it's, it's really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a fun campaign. Been, the players are really into stuff. it. I've been stealing stuff. Uh, I stole stuff fairly regularly from, from the hero's handbook. Uh, for my last campaign, um, because I had, you know, first of all, I'd already integrated the Bargrave into my Curse of Strahd and, and yeah. campaign. Right. And so yeah. I pulled some of the, the spells and stuff from that and, and a Warlock Pact um, from that. And then I had another character who I was like tempting from a dark, who was a Warlock, but an angelic Warlock. And so I was tempting him from one of the Dark Powers, was trying to like, you know, corrupt him or whatever. And so every time we leveled up, it'd be like, all right, cool here's a bunch of spells that you can't find in any other source. Yeah. Like your warlock is offering, and they're all like, you know, uh, shadow or whatever from, from uh, the hero's handbook. And, and he took a bunch of them. And I, every time he did, it's like, okay, you're a little bit closer, you know, to, to, you know, uh, accepting that corruption. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing that like, I have these Midgard relics. This is also kind of funny, right? Like I, I, I have two, tools that i can use to develop like relics of like here's a single use item that has a deep magic spell on it mm-hmm. i've started using this a little bit more and it's like now it's not just a single spell tied to an item but it's a spell no one's ever really seen before like the players have never seen these spells before so that's really cool and then i have the same thing for vault of magic so i have magic items. so again it's like i'm just everything i can squeeze like, it's really interesting to think like all they're missing is a player's handbook and you wouldn't need any wizard's book right? <laughs> like you right. know they don't have a book of classes, but everything else, like yeah. monsters and DM stuff and campaign settings and magic items and spells, they have everything else. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting. But yeah, I'm 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 very excited about it. I'm 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 I was excited going in and then we had our session and now I'm really like yeah. eager. To I, have. I yeah, I'm you know, I haven't had I typically have my game and then like spend the next six days thinking about my game, right? Yeah. Excited about it, yeah. or whatever. I haven't been that way in a while because I got a lot of other life stuff going on. So it was really exciting to me when when that was happening again after last week's session. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that you're you have session zero and you're already like ready to go and and yeah. eager and thinking of ideas like that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. That's a good yeah, thing as yeah, a DM. It's... I have found that sometimes that when I'm excited like that as a DM, it does not translate to player excitement. <laughs> yeah, so in this case, like, yeah, my, the players were definitely 
players are definitely excited. So cool. that worked out. I had one last thing I'll share. Uh, is you know the the, the trick of I've, I've like I want people to kind of build characters together when we have a session zero. But the minute I start talking about what the setting is like, they're already building characters in their head. So this one I said, build two characters, bring both, and you better love both of them, because you're only playing one of them. But that way you at least have two different options, depending on what other people do. And I think that worked pretty well. Like people I, people I, had kind of a couple ideas, and and nobody was too wedded to like, oh, I already had this thing that didn't fit. So I have that yeah. issue as well. I have. I have players for my Descent into Avernus game who created their characters a year in advance and already drew like elaborate uh, artwork for their characters. And I'm like, really? I haven't even told you what's going on yet. And yeah, so it, it sometimes it drives me crazy, but yeah, we, we have fun anyway. <laughs> so. Yep, yep. I am. I am. That that is it for me. All right. I do want to remind people if you want to support the show and what we do here, you can go to Patreon.com/slash slash tome show slash the tome show slash the tome show i think uh and support us on patreon uh a dollar a month uh to to help us you know well help me pay the bills and things that keep the show going sam i'm gonna yes, start sir. 15 minutes on the clock but you have to leave in like 10 so go <laughs> that's okay because i don't have a ton to talk about my uh teenage fifth edition group that was running through temple of elemental evil has uh, gone on hiatus because they're doing all sorts of, you know, they're high schoolers. So they're doing, they're all in summer programs. So they literally like went to different places to do summer programs. So, uh, so of course I can't run the game uh, because they couldn't guarantee, you know, like we didn't want to schedule something and then have them feel bad because they either had to beg out of something that was happening in the evening at their program or have to like cancel at the last minute the game because something's happening in their program, you know? So we just said, well, we just won't schedule anything. So, so I haven't played with them for about, uh, for all of July, basically. So, uh, after the first week of July, they, they both left. Um, so, so, but what I have been doing is playing Pathfinder second edition, because I I've had the books for a really long time and uh, and I and I and I read through I think the core book when it first came out I like flipped through it and read a lot of it and just kind of put it back on the shelf there weren't there wasn't a lot of uh, people that were interested in playing it at the time around me or that I was in contact with or whatever so I just kind of was oh, interesting it had a lot of um, a lot of fourth it has a lot of fourth edition isms kind of it's mm. very it's very much in between like pathfinder first edition and fourth edition D and D and uh which i like because of course i liked i liked fourth edition the good parts of fourth edition for me were really good there were a lot of drawbacks of course right anybody sure. who played fourth edition for a long time any edition actually has drawbacks right um and, but anyway Pathfinder 2 actually solves some of the problems or issues or sort of minor dislikes that I had about some of the way that 4th edition worked. That it's interesting though it's interesting to me that you describe 2nd edition Pathfinder as between Pathfinder and 4E because mm. arguably the impetus behind Pathfinder as a game was mm -hmm. we don't like fourth edition. <laughs> so Well, so part of it, right, but also part of it was that the fourth edition GSL didn't really play nice with third party publishers. Mm -hmm. And Paizo couldn't do what they wanted to do and ha use their same sort of production model and, and, and what they did best with fourth edition because of the strictures on the license. And it's also true. Yes. That the majority of their, their fan base at that time was like, 
we just want to play 3.5. We just want to stick with our third edition stuff. And so Path, you know, Paizo found a, a work a work through for that and made Pathfinder. The thing is that Pathfinder was really set on a third edition chassis. So as they developed, you know, Pathfinder, they had to stick with the third edition chassis. Sure. And at a certain point in time, uh, it it was it was past its prime, right? And so they started developing second edition Pathfinder. There there began to be things that they wanted to do that they could not do with the the lead designers. I mean, right? right. Could they could not do with Pathfinder as it was? So they they started developing second edition. In, in any case, so three years ago they released second edition, and as I said, I've had the core book for forever, but just never really. I mean, I didn't really pay all that much attention to it. I, it was more of a curiosity, and I knew I didn't have anybody that wanted to play it at the time, so I didn't purchase it and say, "Oh, I'm going to play this," and then get disappointed or something. It just happened that now I have a set of people who would are interested in playing it. So we played through the beginner box, which is the, you know, it's intro adventure. It's two or three sessions. Um, and, uh, and it's really fun. <laughs> so, uh, and it, you know, because it is very different from fifth edition and, and the majority of these players are fifth edition players, but they also have experience in other games, uh, like powered by the apocalypse games and and fate games and different things like that. So they're really curious just about other games just in general. So Pathfinder didn't turn them off because they're interested in learning other rule sets. Um, and so we're we had a blast. We're still having a blast with it. Uh, and I'm probably going to run a campaign in it. Um, so you know we'll we'll see. But yeah, it, it really is in be- you know Pathfinder one was more in between. It, it wasn't really in between third edition and fourth edition. It was just third edition continued. Right. There weren't any real big huge changes. The changes were small shifts that then over time became huger changes. But they weren't really. Big. Whereas Pathfinder two is a huge shift in certain aspects from Pathfinder one, more towards some of the kind of goals that 4th edition had that it maybe didn't succeed at and some that it did did succeed at Pathfinder 2 had similar but different goals <laughs> that put them in that same it's hard to explain cuz i don't you know i know a lot of people didn't like 4th edition for a variety of reasons right and uh, you know those complaints or whatever those likes and dislikes those are all valid right i'm not i'm not saying oh everybody was wrong i'm just saying like and so to for me to say that Pathfinder 2 is similar to 4th edition, I don't want to I don't want that to turn people off, right? Like I don't want people to be like, "Oh, well I didn't like 4th edition, so obviously I won't like Pathfinder 2 because it's not that close," right? But some of the things that 4th edition did well, Pathfinder 2 also does well, and a lot of the things 4th edition did only mediocre, Pathfinder does really well. Right, like one of the one of the com- major complaints of fourth edition was, yeah, everything's really balanced, so it's easy to run. However, lots of things feel the same. Right. If you don't really take a lot of pains to role play those things as different, some of those characters just seem the same. And yeah, there's a ton of feet, but all the feats are like, well, you add a plus one and you get to do a move action, or you add a plus one and you shove somebody, or you get to grapple, or you do two weapon damage instead of one. Like, they're all the same, they just have different names because they're from different classes. Pathfinder 2 doesn't do that so much. It makes the classes balanced, but they don't don't all feel samey. They all all have very different kind of ways. Anyway, so this wasn't meant to be like an addition worry kind of thing. Because, um, you know, I don't edition more. Despite the name of my podcast, I don't edition <laughs> more. Because I like them all. It's just what I like to really investigate what's 
what's good about some of them and what do I like about them and then talk about some of the things that aren't so great and why. Scipio wants to know if Pathfinder 2 has an implied setting, and if so, are you using it or are you homebrewing? So one of the differences between Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 2 is that in Pathfinder 1, they didn't talk about the implied setting at all. They didn't talk about the setting at all in the actual core book and in the main rule books, like the Advanced Player's Guide and whatnot. And they left that sort of talk to their campaign setting books. But in the core book uh, for Pathfinder 2, there's actually a chapter that introduces the setting. And some of the, they, they, it's still in Galarian, but, you know, the, but the, um, even though there's a chapter in the, in the book, it's just really to say, hey, here's a setting, you you can have a setting. And the ancestries, right, which is races, but they call them ancestries, those have very specific flavor that you can ignore because it's flavor, but that flavor is also like Galarian-based flavor because it talks a little bit about their histories, right? And then there's a little section on the different cultures of, of the different peoples that are in Galarian. But you can basically ignore that because the mechanics are not focused around Galarian unless you get – there are books that have now – you know, now they've since then they've released books with different character concepts and different like feats and whatnot that are specific to different areas of the setting and different factions in the setting. But the core book itself sure. does not. So it's, it's just like yeah. the Forgotten Realms and the Fifth Edition Players Handbook. That, that's right. Fine. So, so the the question then went on. So then, the real question so is: Am I running homebrew right. right, or am I doing it? Uh, so, uh, probably a little of both. Right. So probably what's going to happen is I'm going to start out saying I'm going to run this campaign. okay? and I've got a couple of different campaigns that I'm that I'm thinking about. So I'm not sure. So I don't want to say it because also a couple of my players might be watching. Um, So I'm 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 thinking about these two campaigns. But ultimately, what's going to happen is after the first couple of sessions, you know, I'm going to homebrew the hell out of it because that's always what happens with me, because I find published campaigns really confining. Right. They're very like, because for me personally, what happens is if we start deviating from the story or we start doing whatever, I start feeling like, oh, I got to get them back and I got to do, you know, and it's very stressful for me rather than just going with the flow and saying, oh, well, here's what happened and saying I can pull them back, you know, when we get around to it, if we end up getting around to it or I'll work the sort of main themes into the directions that they want to go. And I, that's just tends to be my style. So, Mm -hmm. so the answer is yes. Published and homebrew, because just that's so, that's just so 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 published to start with the understanding that it'll probably get homebrewed as you go. Right, right. Because sure. the thing is, like, because I don't know, so I'll probably do something in Galarian just because. Just because like right. that, because I, I, this is almost like it's almost a play test for me from from my perspective, because I want to see it really if I really if it really does do all the things I want it to do for the long term rather than just a short couple of sessions. And to do that, I, I want to offer some options and whatnot that are in some of those Galarian based books. So I'm going to run it in Galarian sure. rather than try to convert a bunch of stuff to a different setting. Well, uh, and in fairness, that's how everybody should be running every setting. 
Uh, sure. Is, is, yeah, yeah, you yeah. should be changing sure. it as you play. So. Right, right, right. And that and that's generally what happens. But, you know, there's a there's a spectrum of if right. I'm running a campaign, how close do I adhere to that campaign, you know, and how close do I or how far away do I get from it? And a lot of people stay relatively close to what the campaign is showing. Right. Because they want to make sure they incorporate all the elements of the campaign and then it has a it has a satisfying ending. Right. Whereas I'm I'm often like. I'm very laissez-faire in terms of how I let my players decide where to go next, and I run sort of more open games. I don't really like put them on rails and, and have them go, and so I end up hedging more towards the, hey, we're just going to go where where they think the interesting thing is, and you know, we'll figure out what's there when we get there. So, yeah, I I, I really like the game so far. It's really really interesting to me. It is super easy to run, and it's very tight. The mechanics are very tight. So uh, the, one of the main complaints that I have about 5th edition is a complaint that a lot of people have, and that is that it's sometimes very difficult to actually know how challenging an encounter is going to be sure. because of the party makeup and what items they have and what spells they have and what level they are and all that. None of that really matches with the encounter building, you know, setup. Uh, and even, even if you use, you know, Mike Shea's nice handy one sheet that gives you a really good approximation of what would be challenging and you can actually try to determine how difficult it's going to be. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Right. Because fifth edition, isn't for Ian, my assessment was by far the the easiest and in many ways most fun edition of D to DM. So if they're if they're trying to do <laughs> Mike Shea disagrees. <laughs> I disagree. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm having so much more fun DMing now than I was at fourth edition. Oh, I mean, other than the combat's taking forever, the the I, I have a, I had a lot more fun in, in other fun. other other than having fighters control the whole fight, so you could just go play PlayStation while they played by themselves. I mean, no. I, I, other than that, it was great. No. <laughs> So here's here's one of the things. Let me tell you one of the things that Pathfinder Two did to make it so that the combats are are a little less sort of let's get stuck in just pound on each other, right? What they did was they made it so that not everything has an attack of opportunity. Interesting. So not every class gets an attack of opportunity. Not every creature gets an attack of opportunity. Only a couple of really martial classes get attack of opportunity, and only one of them at least in the core rulebook, only one of them gets it at first level. Mm. And almost none of the creatures that you are going to fight, almost none of them have attack of opportunity as an easy thing to do. So that means that you can be a lot more dynamic because you're less worried about, oh, when I get there, I have to now stay there because I can't move away because I'm just going to get the crap beaten out of me, right? Um, So while it does have all that tactical combat, it's also doesn't slot at least at lower levels of course when you get to high levels who knows what the heck's going to happen but at the lower levels it's much more dynamic and moves much faster mm-hmm. uh whereas in fourth edition even at the lower levels you get pinned down and you're done right and like the, and the combats are taking forever even at low levels and that's not that's not what i'm seeing at this point yet with pathfinder 2 Cool. Um, for a couple of different reasons, but that's a major one, is that people aren't worried about, oh, if I walk away, I'm just going to get hit by three different creatures that are surrounding me, because that just can't happen. So, you know, so so they do things. So the thing the thing is that it, it feels very much like 4th edition, Jeff, about running it, because it's very tight, and it's very concise, and 
it's set up so that you can easily make a, an encounter with a particular combat uh, sorry, a particular challenge level, but combat's not the only thing. They also have an exploration phase and downtime phase and that sort of thing. And one of the reasons why I think for me, fourth edition was easy to run was because it was so balanced. I could just, the mechanics could get out of my way and I could run a really role play heavy session without worrying about whether I screwed up some encounter or I messed up something or I did whatever, because I know that that math was pretty tight and I know the characters and there you go. And so there it is. Right. Um, and Pathfinder two has that benefit for me. That's part of why I say it's in between third edition and fourth edition, because it has that very tight balanced math. So then that stuff can get out of the way, even though it's crunchy and there are a lot of rules that stuff can get out of the way and I can run a role play heavy session and not worry about, my combat being messed up and screwing up the whole thing because I didn't realize they were just going to be wiped by that thing. Right. So, you know, so that's, that's all I want to say though, but that's what I'm doing. And the, my other difference that I'm doing is I'm going to try to run this weekly because for me, I have a much better time in campaigns when I run weekly because then if we miss a session, well, we only missed a week, right? Right. If you run every two weeks, me, for me, if I run every two weeks or if I run every three weeks, like, I die in between. And then if yeah. we miss a session, now it's been a month and a half, like, that just kills me. Mm-hmm. And that ends up, that ended up being uh, what happened in uh, in in my last campaign. Yeah, so the lead designers of, of second edition um, Pathfinder were Jason Bowman, of course, because he was the first edition, and then Logan Bonner and Mark Seifter. And Stephen Radley McFarland, and so Stephen Radley McFarland and Logan Bonner both worked on a fourth edition. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know Stephen Mandy McFarland worked on four. S- yeah, yeah. SRM um, was one of the rare unicorns who was designing for both for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, so that's it. That's that's what I wanted to say. So next time we meet, I should probably have a couple of more sessions under my belt, and I'll be able to report back whether it's actually holding up or whether it's starting to fall apart already. And I suspect going to hold up for a while it'll yeah. just be an issue of whether or not you're it's your style right and I, I suspect it will be i think you i think you'll have fun yeah oh, i'm sure i will because the thing is like i'm also prepping for i'm running a couple games at virtual greyhawk con in october i'm running those in castles and crusades and so you know i've got like both ends of the spectrum here i've got super rules like castles and crusades and i've got super rules heavy pathfinder too so i'm happy as a clam right now it's wonderful that's yeah. awesome i look forward to hearing how it goes um, yeah, I, I have I have been tempted to steal a lot of Pathfinder adventure paths and, and play around with them um, as much as I don't necessarily want to delve into such a similar but yeah different rules system. Um, I know I know they're doing there's a lot of really cool things that they do in terms of mm-hmm. stories. So mm-hmm. anyway, all right. Well, I think uh, you you got people waiting for you, so we should go yep, ahead and I wrap do. up this episode. All right, uh, we've had a good time talking about our games and uh, somehow, despite the fact that Sam barely had anything to talk about, uh, he still went 20 minutes. I, know. Uh, I was, I was not surprised when you're like, Oh, I haven't played it all in the last month. I'm, except for, you know, it's never stopped us before too. I'm yeah. like, yeah, that, that, that'll be, that'll, that'll be half an hour. How long have we been doing this podcast? Right. No. So yeah. I, the, from the moment you said, I don't have much to talk about. I knew you would fill the time. Uh, I was, and, and I honestly, I had, another 10 or 15 minutes worth of stuff to talk about myself and never got to. Um, so that, that's, that is the way that 
that, that this show works, right? Uh, someday we'll just we'll set aside a full like two hours, and each of us gets thirty minutes, and then we'll still go over the time. <laughs> so. Yeah, pretty much. Right. <laughs> so yeah, this is this was fun, uh, and so I don't know how do I end this show. Uh, come find us at thecombshow.com and we're on Twitter and Facebook and Discord and and support us on Patreon and I don't know. Say goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs> That's how I end the show. <laughs>